Hello lovely people, how are you doing? I hope you're good and I hope you're ready to sample a story as good as any fine wine. Paul Langham was in his 30s and working in the corporate world when he thought there has to be more to life than this. He had his lovely wife Lynn and their children but he knew from his job there had to be more. Then one Saturday while enjoying a glass of wine he said to his wife we must be able to do this. It was a thought that didn't go away and Paul and Lynn went on to open A. Beckett's Vineyard in Wiltshire. They started from scratch, they didn't know anything about winemaking, but now for more than 20 years they've created award-winning wine from what they describe as their little patch of heaven. Now I think the wine spirits were particularly excited about this episode. There is a little interference at the beginning, I do apologise for this, but it does go and how Paul goes on to speak with such passion about his life and his family, well I think you'll agree, it's everything we all aspire to. Paul believes we've got to look at what will make us happy and if we're in a dead-end job and miserable, well it could be time to make a choice. He did and by being honest and brave, what a world he has created. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Paul Langham. Paul Langham, welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. I am delighted to have you with me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It could be a bit of a laugh. Well, I should hope so, because I've never had anyone who's done this before. So this is very exciting. And wine, I must confess, is one of my favourite topics. So what I love, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. So it's just the, the perfect time. So thank you so much. So we start as ever with the prologue. Now, you said you grew up in Essex and you had a fabulous childhood. Oh, very much so. It was uh, just a a normal family life, you know, two two great parents, and um, yeah, it was uh, really really good, and uh, loads of happy memories. Did you have brothers and sisters? I've got a younger sister. But you said actually, very sadly, you lost your dad when you were fifteen. So that must have been really tough for you. I'm so sorry to hear that. It was uh, a surprise, but um, uh, my mother knew. Um, that he had a particular condition that could have taken him young. Um, it's not something that, thankfully, is hereditary, um, but he was only 43. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a shock. And, uh, you know, we dusted ourselves down, we picked ourselves up and got on with life. But uh, often you, you always go back and think of him. Uh, well, I do. And... Uh, uh, earlier this week, we uh, laid my mother's ashes uh, in the grave, uh, my father's grave up in Essex. So it's been, it's been quite a week. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, Paul. I'm so sorry. But it, and well, thank you again then for doing this when it when you've had such a difficult week. Um, staying with your childhood, there you said at school you weren't particularly academic. Well, when I say that, I mean, I'm, I'm not daft, but the point being is there are those who were getting the A grades all the time. You know, nowadays, things I regret, um, I regret that I didn't listen to my chemistry lessons because it's quite handy doing what I do now to know quite a lot about chemistry. Um, so I've, ha I've had to relearn an awful lot. 
because you, you know, um, because there's a purpose for it, that is my trigger. You know, and, and that seems to be the way that I've sort of um, addressed it. But don't get me wrong, um, you know, still got qualifications and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, school was fun. School was an experience. Um, but, you know, I don't, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't see myself as heading, heading off to university and all that sort of stuff as the, I mean, if my father was still alive, he would have been delighted uh, that I that I had gone to university um, but um, he you know he, I just wasn't a natural academic. It's interesting what you say there because that's popped up on this podcast before that you know at school some of the subjects we do we absolutely hate them because they've got no relevance and then later on in life you're like wow actually it's fascinating when you can actually apply it to something isn't it it's it, just because you don't like something at school doesn't mean to say you're not going to find it fascinating later on in life. Oh, it's true, and I mean, I I did I did archaeology at A level, um, which was great because we were digging up skeletons in fields and um, stuff like that. That I enjoyed, and you were looking at, you know, prehistory and into ice ages and looking at this sort of stuff. That I loved, but uh, you then realise the rarefied atmosphere is if you want to go on and study archaeology and have a career in it. it it's a very 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 small world so um you know it, it remains an interest but not something that i'm that i was able to pursue uh, sort of post school when you were at school you said you were a very good singer i was i, I was head chorister in both schools i was at and uh, then reality dawned um and i sort of said you've basically got um you know, 15 years of ridiculously hard graft and I'm my family on my mother's side are all musical. Um, so it sort of sort of flows. My father was a semi-professional tenor as well as working. Um, but he, um, but for me, it was just, it was that constant thought of penury as a student and trying to get gigs uh, as I was trained classically. Um, and that was just, that was possibly not sold to me correctly, shall we say. I think my tutor was a little too blunt um, and basically said that you're going to have to go back to somewhere like Trinity College and just do absolutely everything. And I thought that's another three years of, you know, basically sort of not earning a lot, shall we say. And I just didn't, I just, it didn't sit comfortably. I didn't, didn't feel right. If you know what I mean, yes. So when you left school, going into your first chapter, you didn't really have anything. Uh, you didn't have any idea what you wanted to do. I think was was one of your first jobs in retail. Yeah, it started off um, there. It was just a. Um, I attended Polytechnic doing a business studies uh, course, and we ended up doing a project uh, for the manager of the local B and Q, and. It was it was great fun in the sense that it was uh, at the time it's not B and Q that you see now. This was I'm sorry to say this is going back in time. We're talking eighty four, and it was just this vibrant company that was expanding exponentially. Um, yeah, yeah, amazing. So you did that, and so and then you went on to do um, information data, and then you went on to be a senior product. You said you had a senior product role for a credit reference agency. So you did really all very different things. 
It's just the way it's the way things sort of turned out. You know, um, I'd gone into financial services uh, with the Building Society. Um, the job took me to Northampton. Then, um, when you realise that there were so many people in that organisation on the same grade as you, um, and I'd done a whole lot of work uh, for the then chief exec. It was uh, the time of uh, the last mortgage rescue crisis, which is probably quite prescient because we're about to have another one. Um, you know, with the you know, people were literally coming into the branch and throwing keys on the counter saying, there's your house, you can have it. Because interest rates were going up and up and up and up and people couldn't afford stuff. So we were trying to convert people in arrears in their mortgage into renters with a housing association. So in effect, they stayed in their home. So I was doing that work for the chief exec. It was brilliant fun. Was it? Um, and we were doing, uh, but after that, you went back into the department where I was working and it was, now you need to work on this project. And it was all the, f and there, it was just a total anticlimax mm -hmm. in terms of interest. So I thought there's gotta be something else. Um, so just looked out, I like cars. I, I admit, and there was, a, there was a company in Salisbury advertising for a, um, a product manager for their um, services. When you buy and sell cars, HPI mm. um, is basically a way of protecting people. And I ended up there. We moved down to Wiltshire. That's how I got here. That's how you got there. And that, so had you met your wife, Lynn, by this stage? Uh, yes, well, I met, met Lynn back in um Braintree um and uh, we got married in 89 and um yeah so we basically moved down uh here and uh bought a disused pub as you do as you do um how did you meet your wife Lynn uh met her at the party nice as you so often do she yeah. took an instant instant dislike to me yeah um <laughs> As these things so often happen like that. Yes, that is true. Um, and one thing led to another after that. And sort of um, uh, she realised I wasn't quite as awful as she thought thought I might have been. Yeah. Um, and as I said, we got married in May of 89. And uh, so we just celebrated 33 years. Wow, congratulations. Amazing. Did you meet at that party both drinking wine? No, um, Lynn, Lynn was teetotal. Right, okay. I was drinking beer at the time. You were drinking beer. Um, but uh, no, no, she, she and her family are teetotal. Okay, okay, interesting, very interesting. Right, well, we'll come on to that. So, so you, you were, by this stage you were in Wiltshire, and then, so then did you do the, the credit reference agency? That was your, that you were doing that, and that's when you thought, hang on, there's more to life than this. It was, as I said, the company I moved to and joined in Salisbury, they then got bought by this American credit reference agency who were going on a spending spree across Europe. Um, and you found, you found yourself working in this far more corporate environment, surrounded by salesmen. And it was a totally sales-driven sales culture, which meant that whatever they said, everyone was jumping through hoops. And... Uh, I just thought to myself, am I going to spend the next 25 or 20 to 25 years of my life in a suit doing politics as you do in these high pressure environments and, and that sort of stuff. And I just sort of thought, there's got to be more to life than this. 
So that was the, that that was the conundrum. It was wrestling around in my head, mm. Mm. and I thought, you know, we've still got to provide for the family and do that, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And um, yeah, we were just—I think it was June of '99, sitting in the garden of our house in uh, the, well, it's the next village to where we are now, and. Um, it's when Saturday mornings were very easy. You, you'd done all the tasks. It was neither, you had no commitments, etc., etc. And I'd bought a bottle of wine uh, when I went shopping that morning. So we're sitting down there, just had a glass of wine in my hand. I mean, it was just a glass of wine. It wasn't the drunk conversation mm. you have in the pub and you can't remember what it is in the morning. Mm. Um, and I just said to Lynn, I said, we must be able to do this. And it was a throwaway line. Mm. But as throwaway lines go, it didn't leave. The thought remained in the head and it goes round and round and round and you're thinking, what does this, what does this mean? And so the first thought is, well, wine, where does it come from? France, obviously, was the first thought. And then you realise just how complex it is to actually do anything in France because of all their rules and their regulations and their traditions and their history. So, um, you know, that made us think, surely two relatively innocent folk in the sense of never having worked in wine before, this is way too much of a risk to then sort of plow, sort of pile into something there. So we then looked at Vancouver Island in British Columbia, because you can go to websites like vineyardsforsale.com. Mm. Um, and it's amazing. You sit and browse places for sale going, wow, that looks impressive. Um, and this this thought was it was just too far to move, and so you, all through the summer this this thought is sort of maturing in our heads. Um, and it wasn't until I think mid mid to late September, when we were on holiday because we still had preschool kids then, uh, so you can go when everyone else is back at school, which is always joyful. And um, we found ourselves in Suffolk. Uh, near where my mother had a holiday cottage there at the time. So we were staying there and it was lovely. And um, took the boys back to the school where I was locked away for apparently for my improvement by my parents. Um, and the kids didn't care. But instead of going back into the town where the school was, we drove into the countryside. And on the side of the road, there's this sign saying vineyard. And it was like a light bulb moment and flashback because Every Sunday after church, you put your civvies on, get your bike out and pedal as far away from the school as possible to try and find a pub that would serve you beer without ringing the headmaster. Uh, you know, was it you're 15, 16, trying to pass yourself off as 18, you know, that sort of thing. And every Sunday, past Bruziard Vineyard, I'd go. And so we went in, we tried the wine and it was well made, well presented. Um, but, you know, too Germanic in style for my sort of cup of tea, but that was driven by, as we learned, the choice of their grapes drives the style of their wine. And they then gave us a, um, a map of the UK, and there were vineyards all over it, and we were completely and utterly unaware that this existed. It, it, was, just, it was just like a total mind-expanding moment, and you thought, my God, there's an industry here. And that's when we started our real voyage of discovery. 
That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So, so, but I mean, there's so much there to discuss. The fact that a that you had a thought, because like you say, we often have these thoughts, don't we? And especially in those drunken conversations you talk about, but then no one ever does anything. But that thought stayed with you. But the fact that when you were at school, you were going to a vineyard. That's and and that and it hadn't, you know. And then how it all pieced together. That's just really. I think that's just really amazing. Yes, um, and it was just you. Almost like you came back to it, you know. So we're sitting there going, "Okay, um, where are we going to do this?" That's that, that's the first question. Um, and you think we've got to go back to East Anglia where it's drier, or we've got to go and find chalky soils such as Kent or, or Sussex. Um, and then um, Lynn, who had all the bright ideas or has all the bright ideas in the household, suddenly said, "What about a Beckett's?" And it was, you know. A bit of a shock because we used to come here this used to be a fruit farm where we are and we used to come shopping here when we first moved to the village and it was great because it was all spit and sawdust and uh, yeah there was no if you imagine modern um farm shops sort of like waitrose in a convenient shed mm. this is very much this was very much i've dug it out the ground i've put it in a box now buy it mm. and this is the, the guy who owned it a guy called gerald uh, we come shopping here. It was pick your own strawberries, raspberries, Christmas trees, black currants, um, green beans, you name it. And off they went. And we used to come in. It was great with small kids. You had a classic thing. You go to a pick your own. The kids sit there and feed themselves. And you and you come back with you know a small punnet. And and you can tell by the look of the pick your own owner. They know that your kids have stuffed their faces because they're all co- they're all covered in red gunge. You know? <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, so Gerald had sadly died in early 99 and the place had closed. And right. um, because the problem is if something shuts, you forget about it. Yeah, cool. And it was just Lynn's, Lynn's brainwave. Um, living in a village is a wonderful thing. Two phone calls later, I'm talking to one of Gerald's daughters with the, the classic line of, hello, you don't know me from Adam, but we're thinking of planting a vineyard. Is the land available? Um, and so this sort of developed and sort of by 2000 we had a deal for the land Uh, uh, they kept the house as a holiday cottage and then in 2002 said do you want the house I mean if if, um, this had ever gone on the market I doubt we'd have ever ever afforded it Um, you know horse fields and that sort of stuff so we were really fortunate but of course the other thing is we didn't have a ruddy clue if the site was even suitable we had no idea at all and that was the fun thing so we um we met um a dear man for the first time um which is hans otherwise known as herman the german um th- that's his term for himself um uh, as a vineyard consultant he advised on he looked at the site looked at the soil checked everything helped us choose vines to produce the wines we wanted to produce and uh, it all checked out. So um, in April 2001, we ordered 5,100 vines and they turned up. And uh, we then started planting, having cleared the site, because it was a complete um, sort of abandoned place. You know, it was all overgrown, brambles going everywhere. Um, and we had to clear it all up. Uh, then we had to get it all sort of mowed down. Uh, all the weeds killed off and then ploughed and harrowed and all those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, then you know, we planted and we made our first mistake. 
We put the whole lot in by hand. And what should you have done? Got a machine. Ah. Um, ah. Nowadays, they have laser-guided planting machines, but literally we were just um, measuring the gap between the rows, dra dragging a wire from top to the bottom of the hill with spray markers on the wire and then planting vines in line with those markers on, on the wire. And how long um, did that take? Um, it took us two weeks. You know, we, we started off with family coming to help and then they either had to go back to work or that sort of thing. And um, it really sort of, it was like running a marathon because you literally hit the wall. We got to a point where we were probably 85% done and there's Lynn and myself out there. And we have that, we look at each other and we think, what are we doing this for? Mm. You know, just sick of the sight of it. But we got through it and we made it happen, put them in and um, off they went. Um, and we've doubled the place in size since and we used the machine for that. And if we plant more, we will certainly be using a machine. I will not be digging holes uh, and groveling on the floor because um, you, you do 18 hour days and you basically, um, you can barely move. Um, and, and as I'm a couple of years older now, uh, I don't think the body would react too well to it, you know. I think you've done your bit, though. I think you done. But so before we carry on there, Paul. So going back there, how when you actually first bought, when you actually first bought the the land, how old were your children then? Were they still preschool? Were they? Uh, yes. Let's go back to the uh, one would have. Uh, they were two, uh, four and two, um, and two uh, boys. before we, but yeah, two boys before we got on site, and then. Um, and then, and then we got a bonus buy in two thousand and two, um, and uh, so we also we also have a daughter. Oh, how lovely! And um, did did you still have your? When you say you bought a disused pub, did you ever turn that pub into a, or did you just live in the pub? We converted it. It wasn't allowed to go back into, um, um, uh, you know, a licensed premises. So we just restored the building. Right. Um, and uh, made a fantastic family home, um, which we had from what ninety five through until uh, two thousand and three when we moved onto the site. Yeah, yeah. And was Lynn working at that stage, or presumably was she looking? She was looking after the boys. Um, in the early stages, yes, she she worked in the legal profession, um, and then. Um, once they'd got to a certain, you know, the kids had got to a certain size and then we had uh, Victoria, um, she's found other ways of um, sort of finding a career, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But that's, but, I mean, that was just such a massive thing. And when did you actually leave your job? When did you, when did you leave that last job? Um, well, I did that at uh, half past two, 31st December, 1999. Wow. Um, which is when I signed a piece of paper and walked out the door. I, I still do stuff because I like my brain to be busy, mm. um, but I do it entirely on my terms now. And that's, that's been the joy. It's been the flip mm. to be in a position to actually choose to what you want to do, as opposed to, you know, you're locked into this. You know, I, I basically work for, uh, I've, I've been working in the charitable sector when I'm um, not driving a tractor or doing vineyard-related stuff, um, but I, I, I do it. I do it on my terms. As a consultant type of thing. 
Um, I've been a charity director previously, um, but at the moment, yes, I'm, I'm there as a charity consultant uh, for a couple of um, charities. And so when you left your job on that day, on the 31st of December, if you don't mind me asking you, Paul, how old were you then? Oh, 99. Good grief. I would have been 34. Wow. Because I just think that that was such a brave thing for you and Lynn to do, because I know because so many, but to have two young children reliant on you, you know, and then you had your lovely family home that to do something that you had no knowledge of. I just think that is just so for, for as a family, there's not many families that do do things like that. And I just think that that's just a, such an incredible thing that you all that you all decided to do. It's funny, actually, the the analogy that because you know, I, I often get asked this in sort of you know tours, you know, I mean, how did you know how to do anything and all the rest of it, you know, and to start and do this sort of thing? I sort of my my response has often been, "Have you got kids?" And they go, "Yes." And I said, "Did you do lots of studying before you had children?" And they go, "No." I said, "Well, you apply the same thing to this. Yeah. You you do your research. You understand." You know, if you're looking at parenting and that sort of stuff, you do your research, you ask relevant questions and you manage what you've got in front of you, which is very much the same sort of thing you do with children. Mm. Um, you know, because, you know, there is, you know, I think that's the only that, that's the best way I can describe it. Yes, it is different. Yes, it is new. Um, and yes, I mean, as in everything, there are risks. Um, but, um, you know, we're 20. We were in you. Know, are we now? Year 22. And we're still whipping along quite nicely. Oh, um, then you're more than whipping along. Does does Lynn drink wine now? Does she drink any alcohol now? Yes, she a little. Know. Neither of us drink a great deal. Right. We never have. No. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I think chefs, they say, don't eat much. Because if they're cooking with it all day, you know, we've got, you know, thousands of bottles of wine. And, you know, my objective is not to consume them, it's simply to sell them to people. God, but I mean, because again, I find that fascinating as well. That Lynn, you know, was she was a teetotal, but but that that is amazing to go into something that you don't consume lots of, and then to get the knowledge of for people who do probably consume a lot more. Because you, when you say sort of sticking along nicely, I mean, you're you've won loads of awards. It's a real established. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. And I was looking at the different wines you have, and you've you've got some really some quite expensive wines as well. So you've obviously you've got all different types of wines and. So it, it's really huge now. It's it, it's making good progress. I think the the key thing is, um, you know, how we how we position ourselves. Um, and you know, I mean, in terms of how our wines come to market, Lynn is exceptionally good at tasting wine. Um, she always has has had a great eye for detail. So if we're at the winery going through stuff to do with blending and that sort of stuff she's got very 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 useful input um in there um it also it also helps that women have more taste buds than men whether you were aware of that no i didn't know that now i do know <laughs> it's true <laughs> my husband would always say that women have better taste than men but now now i know why they, there you go. Um, and, and yes, you can reinforce that one this evening. Yeah, I'm going to tell him. when I Now I know I'm going to say I've definitely got better taste. <laughs> ah! 
um but so so now i mean because i've i've done some in my in my day job as a journalist i've done some filming on a vin in a vineyard and i know that english vineyards i mean back then as well in 1999 i mean they're much more popular now but they really weren't around a lot so but i also know how hard work they are you know it's and it's you know it's a seven day a week job and it's going out sometimes in the middle of the night when there's big storms and that kind of thing i mean how how is what is life a daily life like for you and lynn now is you know how how does it work um it's totally dependent on where you are in the year and what's going on around you. And I'm not saying that flippantly. It's, you know, if during the growing season, you've got your spray program in hand and you've done all the vineyard tasks, it's perfectly possible to clear off for two weeks holiday. Whereas come harvest time, 20 hours a day is the norm and you, no one's going anywhere. Um, so, it's it, it's an odd thing it, you know the difference if we were running a stock farm with animals you've always got to be there mm. with vines you don't but you still have stuff that you've still got to do walking the fields looking at crops identifying if there's any disease uh, and then you've got the regular tasks making sure um, the vines are managed correctly you've done spraying you've done uh, mowing etc etc so those tasks you get into a routine and a rhythm that allows you to fit other things around it. So think of it like Tetris. That's in effect, that's in effect what we're doing. Um, you know, fitting uh, certain odd shaped tasks into all together so that everything works correctly. So it's not as, it's not as, as awesomely challenging, shall we say, as you might think. However, there are periods of time where, you know, harvest is, is a challenge. Uh, late frosts are a challenge and you can be up all night um, trying to do something about it. So, yes, there are there are situations that you've got to deal with. But, you know, if you if you've done it right and they often say, uh, what's the difference between a good and a bad farmer? And the answer is a week. Because literally, you know, if you're running behind, then that's your problem. Disease will get in, situations will occur. So, um, you know, it gives you that flexibility, which allows us to do other things. Mm -hmm. did, your, did your children, as they were growing up, did they, did they help you at all? Um, harvest at times, yes. But uh, they're not, they love being here. Mm -hmm. um, we've actually got, uh, until later on today, we've got all three of them home. Um, but uh, the eldest has already moved out and he has a life elsewhere. Um, so they love being here, but I don't see any of them queuing up to um, take it on. Mm. I, think I, th I think that's unlikely. Okay. Do they, do they like tasting the wine as well? Uh, the eldest, Benjamin, does. Uh, Matthew has no interest in wine at all um victoria has limited interest in, in wine they're not then they're not motivated too much with that really um but i mean ben has actually done wine and spirits education trust qualifications when he was a student because the training came free with the job uh, so he's he's um he's got an interest in wine for sure mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but the other two don't. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? And so, um, so now, I mean, the the kind of wines that you do, you <clears throat> you also do, but you do ciders as well, don't you? So, so what is your and forgive my ignorance as I ask this, but the kind of wine that you, when you said at the beginning, the kind of wine that you, you and Lynn wanted to produce, what, how would you describe the wine that you do produce? Okay, I mean, uh, my big interest in, you know, when we arrived, the industry was, what, 850 hectares, which is tiny. It's now over 4,000 hectares. Wow. So it has expanded exponentially. And loads of people have gone into sparkling wine production, you know, seeking to rival champagne, etc. There's nothing wrong with that, but unless you've got millions to put in the ground, because a sparkling wine journey is a long one. You plant a vineyard for sparkling wine, you won't see a product until the eighth year. Wow, okay. You'll have, you'll have spent all the money, but you won't have anything to sell until year eight. Right. Um, and that is a challenge. Whereas if you go for still wines, generally you can be selling them the following year. You'll have made them and they'll be ready for release. Okay. Um, my interest has always been uh, red wine mm. um, and Pinot Noir is just a, a grape that I find utterly fascinating. Um, and we've made red wine here since 2004 and will continue to do so. And it's just amazing to see the results and the awards that we get for what, for what we're doing. Mm. Uh, we still do sparkling, but we just don't do loads of it. We do some, mm. um, because it's just, it balances a small business in terms of cash flow, that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's, it, it's just easier. Uh, and um, as I said, I love the fact that I can be talking positively about the previous year as opposed to saying well we're just about to release two new sparklings which will be from 2017 mm -hmm. so it's that kind of gap that is a bit of a challenge mm -hmm. um, and you know and and uh, as i don't have we don't have investors or um, um a vast overdraft at the bank it's, it's only our own money um you like to run it as a relatively tight ship shall we say yeah yeah, absolutely. Why do you find the Pinot Noir, why do you find that grape so interesting and fascinating? It's flexibility, because Pinot Noir is grown extensively, obviously, in France, in Burgundy, uh, as well as in Champagne for sparkling. Same grape, different variant of it, doing two totally different things. Um, what I love is that Pinot, um, in a beautiful year, you can make red. Um, in a year that's not absolutely perfect, you've got the options of rosé, potentially a still white Pinot, which is something that's being done now. And then you've also got the options of sparkling white, sparkling red, sparkling rosé, or sparkling white. Mm. That's a fantastic palette to work off. Mm. You've got all those options there. Um, and I just, I love the taste of Pinot Noir. It doesn't matter where it comes from. There's fantastic stuff from Burgundy. There's brilliant stuff from Germany. The Germans tend not to let it out of the country too much, um, but it's brilliant. And obviously New Zealand, uh, parts of Australia, um, uh, North America and South America are producing some fantastic pinots. Mm. And it's a superb grape. Mm. 
And so is this why as well, going back to what you were saying about with the sparkling wine takes longer. So presumably, because you, you do do sparkling wines, don't you? So you, you have, um, you know, you can you can be having all, so you can have the sparkling wine that takes much longer, but then you can develop more quickly the still wines. Yes, it, it's, it's a nice balance um, to um, be able to do both. So, you know, we, we'd probably do two thirds of our, production is still wine one-third sparkling um, because it gives us that uh, flexibility and it also always means we've got new fresh wines coming in mm, mm, amazing and have i got this right um i think i was told this once that the alcohol um content in english wines is lower because it's a colder country than if a hot country like australia um broadly yes the problem is in australia because the Global temperatures are rising thanks to climate change. I mean, that's a problem that at the moment perversely is benefiting us. You know, we're harvesting earlier as an industry. I mean, when we started back in the early 2000s harvesting, it was quite normal to be still picking grapes in November. Right. Uh, um, I've only done that once in recent years. Mm. Otherwise, you're into October and... Um, even into September for certain varieties on, on optimum years. Mm. So the world's warming up, which means that, um, you know, we're able, we're able to do different things. Um, and it means you've got the options of sort of um, alcohol wise, English wine tends to be between 10 and 12%. Our Australian chums have the problem that they're getting 16, 17, 18% alcohol. Oh my God. Um, because it's so ferociously hot, which then means that they then got to be very careful processing the wine. They have to reacidify the wine to actually mean that the wine will actually taste well, because as sugars rise, acids fall in the grape. Okay. And the problem is in Australia, they're falling so far that there's virtually no acidity in the, in the, in the grape at all. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you're going to see a lot of change um if we assume both of us are going to make at least 35 more years on the planet which would be nice mm. um you will see vast swathes of southern europe stop making wine mm, God, you know it's really you know that yeah that's serious i mean they'll be moving vineyards higher up in hills and mountains they've got this in spain they've, they've been moving vineyards up to nine thousand feet above sea level mm because they they're future proofing wine production because they know the central plain of spain is just an, is totally inhospitable now you're you're out there in nature all the time and you're really seeing it, what we all hear about but you're actually seeing it on a daily basis uh yes very much so and i mean that's one of the reasons i, I love it because i can i can be outside mm. and it's just amazing to watch and to see um it brings other challenges you get other pests moving up so our next challenge is dealing with um, uh, other problems out there, um, the light brown apple moth uh, larvae. Normally it's in Europe, but it's now across the channel. So there are places where it's starting. So we'll face different challenges as a result of warming temperatures. But I suppose going back to your first chapter, very good at dealing with problems. Um, yeah, you just have to adapt, survive and and, and sort of make it, you just make it happen. That's mm. the thing. Mm. Um, and it's good. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, 
I can say I'm happy. Mm. And it's lovely to be in a position to say that you that that, that you're happy. Yeah. It really you know, is. I've Yeah. Because on your website, I think um it's lovely what you say you you know you, your aim is to have as much fun as possible and life is an experience it's not an experiment and that i mean it's just so true and that sort of really is like what the essence for me for this podcast is all about the fact that so many people carry on like you could have done in a job just because it pays a regular salary and it's great to have ideas but do you know what we just you know you never get around to doing what you really want to do but yet you came you had this thought and it wasn't even that it was a long time that you you know you dreamt of it as a child but it came to you and like this is what I should be doing and then now look at you and Lynn living the life you are I just think it's I just think it's absolutely amazing well thank you I mean you know we, we do we live in a fabulous part of the world I've got a great view out of my window obviously it's it's, it's an awful it's an awful commute yeah. it really is I bet you get stuck in traffic oh Sundays yes oh yeah uh, Monday mornings terrible Monday, Monday mornings can be really difficult yeah but you know you see people smile uh, when they're drinking your product. People come by it at Christmas and they're having it at Christmas on at Christmas dinner. Yeah, um, is great. Seeing the interaction you get, you know, through social media and that sort of stuff, yeah. is is good. But you know, we know that we will we will always be a small niche producer. Mm. You know, we're not we're not in the league of the Hambledons or the Night Timbers or the Camel Valleys. Um, you know, we're just you know, comfortable in our own skin, doing things our own way here in Wiltshire. And, and it, but, you know, you're always learning. And that's the best bit about this. Every day, something else drops in, new, new bit of information. Um, and I love it. Mm. And, uh, you know, I get, it, it makes me smile. And, you know, if you can, if you can smile, you know, even when, the world is particularly challenging at the moment that's obviously uh, that's obviously a good thing and i hope it i hope it rubs off on the kids and i hope it rubs off on our customers yeah yeah i'm sure it does and presumably you're well what role models you are to your children to do something that they want to do you know or do something that they enjoy as well because and to say that to be to say that to be comfortable in your own skin and you're learning as well i'm not sure how many people can truly say that we all think we might be upset but so again i mean thank goodness you did you you took that thought and thank goodness you both worked together i mean and 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 presumably you know you and lynn i mean i i work in the same place as my husband you've met my husband um but Mm. is that does it work well the two of you doing this together um we have we have our sort of particular roles and i tend i tend to take the lead on vineyard stuff but there's there's detail and that sort of stuff um fits in and, and that's where that's where lynn comes that comes into her own she's also there as a wonderful voice of reason um uh, which is which is great you know if you're thinking about heading in a particular direction you you get a have you considered this have you considered that i mean we've just this year we've opened our first uh, holiday cottage on the site um and uh, you know she's made some great uh should we say adjustments as to how that looks and all the rest of it um you know we're uh, bookings are coming in which is always lovely mm. um and so we do that we have a we have a uh, a way of knitting it all together mm. which which at the end of the day is good 
Yeah, it really is. What before we move on? What is your favourite wine? If I'm honest, uh, my favourite wine would be um, uh, something maybe the grape called Gruner Veltliner. Mm. Wow! It's grown mainly in in Austria, um, and it's just a cracking white wine. Mm. And I'm just, but I'm particularly partial to it. I'm not. I wouldn't turn down other things, but if you ask me for a sort of a personal choice, that that would be the one for me. Yeah, yeah. And what about what you produce? Which is your favourite? Are you allowed to say of what you produce? Is it like picking a uh, child? Yes, it, for me, it's it's the red, mm. because I suppose it's this thing of you're doing something that not everyone else is doing, and many people would say, "Oh, that's too risky." And I love generally wanting to be going in the opposite direction to where the herd's going. Mm. Yeah, well, you've shown you that know. with what you've done. And what's Lynn's, what's Lynn's favourite? Um, she's particularly partial to a pudding wine, um, you know, a dessert wine, but from our own sort of uh, setup, probably the rosé. Nice, yeah. How lovely, how lovely. So to move on to Be Continued, what would you like to do next? Well, we gained we gained planning uh, for a winery and our new visitor centre and a store um, just prior to two rather interesting things, which are um, obviously uh, Brexit and uh, COVID. Mm. So we've sort of stopped, if I can put it to you like that, because it just uncertainty as to is it right to pursue and build these things and do that? We're in that sort of, you know, what comes next? I mean, you know, we, you know, with, you know, geopolitical plus what's going on in this country this morning's election results, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. There's a genuine, I think there's, a, there's an element of uncertainty out there. Mm. Um, and it's difficult to know what side or, or you know, you know, what steps to take so to some extent we're being sensible if that's the right word to use and we're sticking to the script of where we are but um you know i i, I admit i would love um we we're talking to a um a local distiller about producing some brandy okay wow um which is one thing um it's not quite on the same scale as a new winery building and a new visitor centre. But, you know, a diversification for us would be that. And I'd also quite fancy producing some beer. Mm. And, uh, I do I do have a friend who has a brewery and, and we're talking, you know, loosely about doing something. Mm. Um, you know, so, so there are things um, in the wings, but because of the last three years, since since those decisions yeah the prospect of you know spending six hundred thousand pounds on something is definitely not going to be happening mm -hmm. and we, which frustrates me but it's also right yeah not to not to rush in yeah and like you say you said earlier you're comfortable in your own skin so you know that i know how appreciative you are of that so um, and brandy sounds great those people that you know buy the wine for christmas they can get a nice brandy as well that's nice 
Well, that 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 would be the plan. The trouble is, you can't rush it because you you distill it and then you'd have to stick it in a barrel, and at least five years would have to go by. Oh, okay. So you have to wait a bit for that. Yeah, it's it's not it's not an instantaneous solution, unfortunately. No. I, I wish it were. It'd be Christmas like twenty thirty. We'd we'll look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. It's a, it's a bit of a how long? Yeah. And um, but it's true. It does it does take that sort of time. Amazing, though. Amazing. Who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way? Your acknowledgements. In terms of uh, wine related, um, obviously Hans, uh, who's now retired, um, for his sort of support. Um, there's a range of people in the industry who have been important uh, to us and you know, as we've grown and dealt with stuff. Um, in terms of others to thank, um, more more sort of locally, um, you know, my darling wife, you know, with none of this would be possible without her, because it's that it's that important bond that sort of puts it all together. Um, my father, the foundations that he sort of provided for me, um, my mother, who uh, uh, only recently passed away, but uh, she. Um, she was just brilliant at being this sort of encourager, if I can use that term. Mm. And that's been fab that's been fabulous. But, um, you know, around me, I've been blessed to sort of work with a whole range of really good people in the vineyard industry who, you know, shared ideas and shared thoughts. Um, and that's been wonderful. And you feel like, you know, you know, you're competing with some people, but you know, you can sort of, uh, you know, still rely on each other for assistance. Mm. I'm also grateful for my kids because they've all three of them have just grown up to be really lovely human beings. Mm. And, you know, to their age between 26 and 19. And um, we, we look at them, Lynn and I, and we sort of say, well, they're still here. None of them have had any crises. They're all going through education and they're doing it their way and they're doing it very well. They still get on with each other. They like their parents and they're nice people. Mm. Now that surely is um, something to be exceptionally thankful for. What do they do? What do, what do the three of them do? Uh, ben is a uh, web designer and programmer for a company in Bristol. Mm -hmm. um, Matthew's uh, an IT engineer in Chippenham. And uh, Victoria has just finished her first year uh, at Norwich University doing photography. Wow, it's all different, but I'm just amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I have two nerds and someone who's arty. There you go. Um, it's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, bless her, she uh, she got a first for her first year's work, oh, which is absolutely nice. fantastic. So yeah. we were. We were, we were well made up, shall we say. I bet you are. Oh, what a lovely mum and dad. What a lovely mum and dad. So, um, now look, so you can, you can, you've got some good advice here. So, Paul, someone's listening to this. So going back, yeah, you do. I think you're, I think you're very equipped to answer this next question. Um, oh, Lord, here yeah, it comes. No pressure. No pressure, Paul. Um, <laughs> so let's go back to those days. Okay, when you were at B&Q, when you were working with the hi-fis, and then with the credit reference agency so there you were and you were 
you know, you were doing it, but you knew deep down there was something else you wanted to do and you didn't know what it was. First of all, if someone's, and you did have responsibilities, you had a wife, you had children. If someone's listening to this now and they've got responsibilities and they're thinking, hang on, yeah, okay, but I, I, yeah, it's all right for Paul, but I don't even know what I want to do and I haven't had a thought. What would you say to that person who doesn't know what they want to do and they feel, but they feel totally stuck in the wrong thing for them? Um, I suppose the first thing you can sort of say is, is there something you like doing that could be could be something that you could actually do? Uh, I can't remember who said it, but um, someone once said that if you can find something that you enjoy doing and gives you pleasure and you can make a business out of it, it will keep you happy for the rest of your life. Mm. And I think that's I think that's key. I mean, you know, I mean, um, I mean, obviously, our, as our elder kids come to the point of, you know, mortgages and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's frightening. Mm. I mean, you know, for for what they're having to sort of face and that sort of stuff. And the problem is, you know, you, you've got to look at, you know, will it make you happy? Sitting there and doing a dead end job and you're miserable. You, you've got to make a change. You've got to do something different because otherwise you're not doing yourself any uh, a favor. You're just gonna, you're just gonna resent the fact that you're almost a wage slave in a, in a job that you can't stand. Mm. And you've got to make, you've got to make those choices, but some people can't, they can't bring themselves to make that change. Others need a nudge and others will just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And and on that sort of on a similar note, if you're what would you say to somebody who is stuck or they feel it maybe even a job that they don't hate, but it's okay, you know, it's okay. And and they know what they they do deep down know what they want to do, but it's okay what they're doing, and so the days go by and then it's months and then it's years. You know, what would you say to that person who's got that niggle, who know they should be doing something else, they know what they want to do, but they just can't make that next step? question is can you pilot it mm. in so much as you you need you know you don't feel confident enough to break away from what you're doing but is there a way that you can pilot it so that you can try it out test the water and sort of a get confirmation back that people are interested in perhaps what you want to do and it gives you confidence that you may want to take a slightly deeper step some people have to gradually separate away mm. from what they're currently doing to what they actually want to do. Others just, you know, go completely. Mm. And, you know, but, you know, um, you only learn by failing. You only learn by experience. And the only way to get an experience is to try something. And if it doesn't work out, you've not failed. You've actually had the gumption that many people have never had. And they'll, they'll say, I should have done this, I could have done that. And yet they've achieved nothing. So, you know, you know, try it. Work out how you can pilot that activity alongside what you're doing now mm-hmm. would, be, would be my uh, suggestion. Mm-hmm. See, I told you you would be good at that answer. I have got one last question before we go. I'm conscious I'm taking your time. Do you still sing when you're in your vineyard? Yes, at harvest time I am singing most of the time uh, whilst people are picking um, because I've trained to sing I don't need a megaphone to call people in for tea coffee or lunch 
um, one can project one's voice, um, and that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, but yes, no, still sing. Um, you know, I'll be singing in church from time to time, and in the car, especially. You know, very very loudly, oh. much to sometimes the embarrassment of my children. <laughs> Well, look, Paul, thank you. So you certainly haven't embarrassed yourself on this podcast. Thank you. The idea of a lovely glass of wine with your singing, I can't think of a better thought on a Friday afternoon. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest on the next chapter. Thank you. My pleasure. So there you are. What did you think of that? If you can smile when the world is challenging, then that's a good thing. Well, yes, it is. And Paul and Lynn have created such a good thing such a joy to speak with him with someone who is clearly so happy and content with his lot it's much rarer than it should be and i love that adapt survive and make it happen now to find out more about paul lynn and their delicious wine the link to their vineyard a beckett's is in the show notes you can of course keep up to date with me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com if you could rate and review this episode well then that would be marvelous and it may even just help someone else with their next chapter you're listening to the next chapter by ellie barker a flower pot production i'll see you next week but in the meantime i'll leave you with paul's question can you pilot it go on have a think i think you can and paul does too speak soon <laughs>